there are you know news media outlets that have become part of the information ecosystem that have sort of political or financial motives and they exploit these kinds of situations crisis events of all kinds to try to get eyeballs on their site get you know someone to buy nutritional supplements or you know make some sort of political point or 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 shape some sort of political ideology and so all of these aspects are things that are happening in the online ecosystem and i think all of them make us particularly vulnerable to the spread of misinformation at this time when it's so critical that we're able to find a way to make sense of what's going on. I'm Quint Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 16th, 2020. Welcome to another episode of the podcast's Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. We usually release new episodes on Thursdays, but we're coming out with this episode a few days early. It was a great and unusually timely conversation about the information environment surrounding the coronavirus pandemic. Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Kate Starbird, an associate professor of human-centered design and engineering at the University of Washington. She's long done fascinating research about online disinformation and misinformation, and is an expert in what's called crisis informatics, or the study of how information flows during crisis events. For this conversation, though, we focused on one crisis in particular, COVID-19. This podcast focuses on disinformation, but the conversation was about a lot more than that. We talked about the possibilities and dangers of social media and the internet in times of crisis, how communities make sense of disaster, and the anxiety of living in the world right now. I hope you'll listen. It's the Lawfare Podcast, episode 522. Kate Starbird on Pandemics and Infodemics. So Kate Starbird, thank you very much for joining us today. You're a professor at the University of Washington researching crisis informatics and online rumors. Let's start with a really basic question. What is crisis informatics? (laughs) Well, crisis informatics is sort of the study of how information flows during crisis events. And we could, you know, talk about natural disasters. We can talk about Uh, wide-scale emergency events, and then crisis events like we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus. And so you've you've written about the concept of collective sense-making, which it feels to me the way you describe it like something that will be very familiar to anyone who has been online over the last couple of weeks as the coronavirus has showed up. So I'd love for you to describe that. And then also uh, you are based in Seattle if you want to speak at all to sort of what it's like going through that process of collective sense making yourself as someone who is right now sort of at the center of an outbreak. Yeah. So let me just start with the idea of collective sense making. And that is, you know, that it's actually sort of a natural process, right? So when a a crisis happens, there's often a lot of information uncertainty. You don't know what's going on. Uh, They talk about it as the fog of war sometimes, and information might be changing. It's dynamic. And and in that kind of space of information uncertainty, there's a lot of anxiety, uh, especially when you're you're, you're in an affected area. You want to know what actions should you take? How might you be impacted? How can you protect yourself, your family, your community? And so in, in that kind of situation with an anxiety and, and, and uncertainty, we tend as humans to want to come together. This is going to be a problem as we talk about COVID, um, but we want to come together and, and we want to make sense of what's going on. We want to try to piece together the information that we have. We want to make it relevant to us personally, and we want to come up with the best kind of explanation. And 
And that process is not something that we problematize as crisis informatics researchers. It's actually something that that we understand is important both for information needs and for sort of like the psychological coping with the with the conditions of a crisis event. And it's it's a really important part of that process. Unfortunately, the collective sense making process, as as you're piecing together information, you might be getting them from official sources, you might be getting them from your neighbor, you might be now getting them from a, a website located who knows where, you're piecing that together and we can often come up with explanations that later turn out not to be true. And um, so that's sort of a byproduct of, of the sense making process is the spread of misinformation. And, and that misinformation, sometimes it's not not harmful, but it can become harmful when it causes us to make the wrong decisions or make decisions that are actually sort of maladaptive to the situation. And so um, while the process is natural, we don't want to problematize it. There are aspects of it that are not necessarily productive for the collective responses to disaster events. And so you, we, we understand this as, as, as something that's happening. It's something that's important, part of what's happening. And yet it also is a vulnerability. And in particular, in today's information environment that's characterized by, you know, the pervasive spread of misinformation and disinformation, sort of intentional misinformation, which is something very different from this process that I've been talking about. But our information environment has that kind of feature. It also features sort of politicization of everything. And so we're particularly vulnerable during crisis events to the spread of misinformation, to the spread of disinformation, and to the politicization of these kinds of messages because we're feeling that anxiety, we're feeling that uncertainty, we wanna to try to resolve it. And, and, and with our new kind of dynamics of the information space, we're particularly vulnerable at this moment to absorbing and even spreading uh, intentional misinformation, which I think is something we should be problematizing. And so can you give a sense of, of what that looks like in, in practice, this collective sense-making? I mean, particularly, I feel like it's been visible online on social media platforms like Twitter, but I'd just love to hear uh, your thoughts on sort of how this can work well and how it can work poorly in context of disinformation and misinformation. Yeah, so I'll just give you an example of how it looks right now in my family in Seattle. Um, my parents are in an elder living facility not far from my house. So they're in this, an elder living facility in, in Seattle. It's not yet affected, but we are very worried that it may be. And so for us over the last 10 days, maybe a little bit longer, my siblings and I have been trying to find any information about, you know, what are the dangers? Where is, the, you know, where is the virus currently located? You know, is there anyone that works in one facility that might also work in my parents, you know, the facility my parents are at? And so we're trying to piece together this information. So we're going online, we're we're going on social media, we're looking for for any kind of information. I've even put questions out to social media, other social media users about not that aspect, but other aspect of like, what should we do? We're in this situation. What's the best advice? And so we're looking for the best advice and we're trying to figure out, is it safer to move them into our home? Is it safer to move them into my brother's home? He has a bigger space, but he's got little children. They're out of school, but what does it mean? You know, so we're just trying to weigh all these things and we don't know the answers. And there's no clear, like this is, especially 10 days ago, there was no real clear resource. And so what the sense-making process looks like is us just trying to, you know, come up with all these theories. Well, if we do it this way, then this might happen, but this other thing might happen. And it's just us trying to figure out, you know, you know, what What should we do? And, and and how do we understand the current risks in a situation where the science, the, the actual science about the risks are changing from day to day? And so what we knew yesterday is very different than what we know today and even than what we know we might know tomorrow. I don't know exactly how disinformation has affected this conversation yet, 
early on, I was seeing reports about the, the, the life care center that was affected. That's not, that's a maybe 10, 15 miles from our house, um, not in Seattle, but in a very nearby community. And so we were, we were looking at that information. I was seeing some social media posts and I actually thought that they might be misinformation early on because I wasn't sure if they were true. Someone said they were outside and they took a picture of a sign, right? So early on in that process, there was information that was a rumor that I was using to inform my, my understanding, but that at the time I understood could have turned out to be false. And I tried to measure it that way. It actually turned out to be true, which is a a feature of rumors during disaster. Often they turn out to be true. So we have to kind of think about it that way as well. But anyways, this is something, you know, that, that we're participating, just like I think everybody out there is participating in one way or another who has a family member who, who might be in a vulnerable group and just trying to figure things out. One of the other aspects is that my parents are in a very different information ecosystem than we are and convincing them that they may want to leave their facility and come live with us 10 days ago when it might have still been feasible was very difficult because they were getting a very different message from the media systems that they were watching that were saying, oh, it's just like the flu. It's not going to be that bad. And so when there was a time period where it might have been reasonable to move them, it actually was, was difficult to get their attention to it in the way we wanted to. Um, but it's just, you know, so th- those are aspects of this very, like, confusing and, and dynamic and politicized information space. Well, those are really vivid examples. Thank you for talking about that. I'm really sorry to hear about the stressful situation you're going through. You talked a lot there about the internet, obviously, um, which is kind of our primary information ecosystem for a lot of us at the moment. What does your field of study think about what's distinctive about informatics in the internet era? Because you talked a lot there about how it's facilitating the search for information and sometimes can be really positive. Um, and then sometimes it can be manipulated or can facilitate, you know, false information spreading faster. But all of that equally could have been true in a pre-internet era. Is there something distinctive about the internet in this kind of environment? Yeah, I think that's a really, a really good question. Absolutely. During crisis events, historical crisis events, pre-internet, these were times where some actors did try to exploit the situation for different kinds of gain. Um, This is a known kind of feature of disaster events as well as there are, there is a a role that they've called exploiters and they they go into those communities and try to exploit them. The difference, there's a few differences now, I won't be able to probably cover them all, but one is, is that people that might want to exploit the situation can participate from anywhere in the world. All disasters are in some ways uh, local. Even this one is, it's, an, it's a global disaster or a global crisis event. Many people are, are, are going to be affected. We're all going to be affected by it. But it's still localized in terms of different outbreaks or, or sort of geologic, or geographically bounded. And the, the internet allows those of us that are experiencing something acute to have participants from the outside be in our information spaces. And sometimes that's good. They can actually help us get information that we need. They're affected differently. And so it's actually, there's some positives to having this sort of global participation after a, a crisis event. But there's also the negatives is that it, it opens up that conversation to people who might want to exploit it. And so that's that's one one factor. And another factor is, is it's often hard to understand where certain information comes from. And so because of the way information moves around the internet, it can lose its context, it can lose connection, and it makes it a little bit harder for us to figure out which information we should trust. On top of that, there's so much of it 
that w that we have to do some sort of vetting process. We often have to do it quickly and we don't have the resources to do that. And so this sort of information overload combined with the fact that information moves and, and loses connection to its source makes it easier to spread misinformation and easier to become a victim of misinformation. There's other elements of sort of the, the, the norms and practices of, of online information spaces and the sort of rise of politicization uh, of the kinds of conversations that we've seen after disaster events. I mean, disasters are always, in crisis events, are always political. Um, there's so many aspects that, that intersect with power and, and how who has access to resources and, and all of those things. But the online rhetoric after disaster events, as a person who's been studying this since about 2009, the online rhetoric has become, it's, the politicization has happened so quickly. So many different parties are trying to score political points in different ways. And so in that kind of pervasiveness, I think, makes it a space that's just harder to navigate and harder to navigate in, in sort of the objective way that you might want to navigate it when you're just trying to find the best information on how you should respond. And then there's aspects of just, there are information providers, not just social media, but there are you know, news media outlets that have become part of the information ecosystem that have sort of political or financial motives, and they exploit these kinds of situations, crisis events of all kinds to try to get eyeballs on their site, get, you know, someone to buy nutritional supplements or, you know, make some sort of political point or, or, or shape some sort of political ideology. And so all of these aspects are things that are happening in the online ecosystem. And I think all of them make us particularly vulnerable to the spread of misinformation at this time when it's so critical that we're able to find a way to make sense of what's going on. So you you discussed the the politicization of disasters. I would love to hear you speak more about that. Do you have a sense of, of what has made that increase over time? I, I don't think I have a simple explanation for why, except that you know, uh, there was a benefit to somebody who saw that that was something that they, they should keep doing and not just an individual. I think a lot of people, uh, whether it was to gain social influence or to advance their own objectives or whatever they those are. But it's something that the way we think about when we go back and read some of the earlier papers that we wrote 2009, not just we, but the people in crisis informatics, were, you know, were writing in 2009, 2010, 2011 about the social media um, activity after a crisis or disaster event, there were some. You, they always there's always a category. We go and we as researchers and we categorize. We, we we find the main themes that are going on in a social media conversation, and we talk about you know these people are trying to report on impacts. These are people who are trying to you know find acute needs and and help people get supplies that they need. And there was always this one category of you know, some kind of political exploitation or political conversation or whatever, but it was tiny. You know, there was, you know, it, sometimes it showed up. Sometimes the people wouldn't even really talk about it when they wrote the paper. The researchers would, would they would mention it, but have like two sentences because it wasn't really a huge part of what we were seeing. And then if you just look three, four, five, six years later, um, you start to get into 2014, 2015, 2016, and it just becomes such a huge part of all the conversations that we see after crisis events. We were Last over the last year, we've been doing research on the false missile alert in Hawaii that happened probably 2017. So it's a the false missile alert in Hawaii, and it we were looking at the data. It becomes politicized with people like just trying to score political points against Democrats, against Republicans, against Trump. Who who, who cares? Um, 
it starts within minutes before they even knew that the the missile alert was false. They start to politicize it. And it's not like a tiny bit of the conversation. It's a significant part of the conversation. And it's just something that's so different than the kind of data we would have seen about that five or six years prior. And so it's just one of the trends that we've seen in, in online conversations. And certainly COVID is no different. And I don't think it's that's going to be diminished over time. I think we're only going to be seeing more and more in that. And I I don't want to say that we shouldn't be critical of political leaders and their responses to to the crisis event. I think it's important for us to be critical in ways that help us prepare for the next event and in ways that help us respond to this event. But the politicization just to win points and just to get votes versus the critical of political uh, responses because we need to do better, I think we need to differentiate those and, and problematize the latter of like just scoring points and really sort of, if we want to focus, let's focus on the first one, which is like, let's be critical in order to make this better so we're, we respond better in the future. Have you seen the same trend in the literature that more discussion of disinformation over time as well? I mean, this is notionally a podcast about disinformation, and it's sort of hard to find any aspect of discourse at the moment that doesn't have a disinformation angle. Um, and COVID is no exception to that. There's concerns about bad actors manipulating uh, the information environment. But you were sort of talking about earlier how uh, that's really only one aspect of misinformation in this environment when we're all sort of panicked and looking for, for information. Do you think that that concern might be overblown compared to the rest of what's going on? Or what's your sort of sense around disinformation in the current environment? It's a hard question of like, where do we prioritize it in this current crisis event versus where do we prioritize it in sort of in our political conversations and, and choices? And, and where do we see you know, disinformation as, as, a, as a critical problem? So I don't think we can disentangle all of these things. I think disinformation, certainly when we were thinking about some of the, the changes that we're perceiving in political structures around the world, and how disinformation feeds into that. And I think that is a critical problem of society. I, this is, you know, in, in fact, I, I've been a crisis researcher for many years. And in the last few years, I've really started to focus purely on disinformation because I, I saw it as such a critical problem. The COVID virus has really brought me back to my crisis informatics roots, in part because those two things are actually meeting up uh, where we have the, the you know, a, a crisis event that needs that needs response in an intersection with an information environment that has this critical problem of disinformation. I don't think, just like we shouldn't be doing it in the political sphere, I don't think we should be overblowing the problem of disinformation around COVID. And I think we really should um, highlight where a lot of the misinformation we see may just be a, a natural byproduct of a sense-making process. But I don't mean to also downplay it either, right? So I think this is going to be an aspect of the information space um, around COVID going forward. And I don't see disinformation diminishing. I see it actually becoming more and more a part of what's going on as we shift from conversations about what's going to happen to conversations about who caused this, who's to blame, and those kinds of things. And I, and I do see disinformation begin to, to form this sort of connection between COVID and the 2020 election. Uh, in ways that I don't know exactly how it'll play out, but I have a few hunches. <laughs> yeah, is am I uh, playing with fire if I ask you to talk about that a little more? I'm I'm curious to to know what you see and what direction you think it might be heading. 
Yeah, I don't I don't think I'm I'm gonna speculate too far, but from what we're already seeing is just sort of the, the use of disinformation narratives on accusations about and it's this is actually two way accusations. It's not just going in one direction. Um, and I mean that between different countries uh, of claiming that, you know, that this virus was intentionally created and spread for some kind of gain and that theory being used to achieve political objectives. Uh, and we also might see similar kinds of, uh, of accusations about who's at fault and who's to blame feeding into nationalist sentiments that have been used recently to promote right-wing populist parties, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. So the the World Health Organization has declared what it calls an infodemic about COVID-19. I'm curious, first off, if just if you wouldn't mind just defining for our listeners what the term means, but also if you think it's helpful for the WHO to make a declaration like that. Is that useful for people trying to sort and process and be critical about the information they're receiving? Or does it just add to the noise? Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question to reflect on. I think I uh, I wrote a blog and I used that term. So I, I found it to be useful in the sense of just getting people's attention to this kind of phenomenon. I think we're, you know, kind of defining what it means. I think I one of the goals I had for trying to sort of write that the article I wrote, um, Medium article blog, I don't know what to call it. But um, one of the motivations was to sort of like, make sure that we understood that the, the information system and some of the behaviors that we might be seeing aren't just quote unquote fake news or disinformation, but they actually are a blending of, of what are sort of some natural processes with some more toxicities that we see as being kind of related to an internet era. And those are entangled in ways that, that are going to be hard to disentangle the natural process from, from the, the manipulations and exploitations. And so I think it's good for us to talk about it. I do think we are, we as information consumers face or, or participants, right, in online spaces, face a challenge of navigating those spaces in ways that allows us to still figure out and find information we can trust without throwing up our hands and giving up. So I guess the challenge is of balancing skepticism and an understanding that there's manipulation out there with, with enough trust or at least confidence that we can find information that we could trust. And we have to have confidence and we have to have skills that that actually support that feeling of confidence that we can find information that we can trust. And I think um, that is a different, that's a hard challenge. And even as a researcher who understands, you know, some of the the theories behind why these things are happening, even as someone who's been studying this for 10 years, it's still hard for me in the moment interacting with these information systems to always be able to, to discern true from false and misinformation from disinformation. And especially being in Seattle and feeling the anxiety of, of these, de- these decisions and, that I make about what to trust are actually ones that can uh, affect me and my family and my community. And, and so I know this is a challenge. It's not, I'm, I'm not facing it alone. I think we're all, we're all facing this challenge and it's not, it's not easy. That leads right into something that I'm really curious to ask you about, uh, switching from your role as, uh, you know, one of all of us trying to make sense of this to someone as a researcher studying this information environment. Uh, I'm really curious if you could just unpack for us a little bit 
how you actually do that. Can you track what's going on in real time at all? Or is this something that you're just going to be spending, you know, years unpacking and disentangling in, in retrospect? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because there's actually a lot of people who call themselves researchers in this space. And there's actually different kinds of research. As an academic, uh, the kinds of research we do, we can't really operate in real time because of the way we do the kinds of analyses we do and the things that we're trying to kind of unwind, it does take months and even years, months to get the analysis and really get the findings and even a year or two to really refine them into something that's helpful, something that fits into our academic community and, and makes a contribution in that sense. That pace is too slow for, for some of the things that we're seeing happening online. And so we see other kinds of researchers who have become sort of real-time researchers that that sort of converge, they, they work at a different scale, they put out research you know, in two weeks, it's not peer reviewed in the same way, but it's, it's meeting this need of timeliness. Um, and they're beginning to collaborate with journalists in a way that I think is really important. And we're, we're studying those kinds of collaborations and hoping to support them in the future. So I concede that in our research lab, we, we'll probably, we're, we're sucking up data. We're just, you know, we're, we're pulling down data, we're collecting it, we're starting to do some basic analyses to see what might be some interesting phenomena that, that we might be seeing going on. And we can identify who some of the influencers are and, and, and people that are rising in influence in interesting ways. And so we're looking at some interesting questions there, but we're a long way from being able to, to you know, put out a, a, a peer-reviewed research paper about that. But there are great people doing things um, a lot faster out there. Uh, and so the, the problem with that is it moves so fast that it's not, that it can make mistakes. So we've got this balance between this kind of slow process of academia where we have to, we're really sure that what we're seeing is what we're seeing with this kind of real-time demand for understanding, you know, what's happening in these information spaces right now. And I think journalists are trying to adapt really quickly and get the skill sets and collaborations in place to do some of that, which has been really interesting um, outside of the COVID response, but the the, the takedowns that are that are happening with Twitter and, and Facebook and how they're collaborating with journalists and researchers to put out um, reports in like weeks. I mean that that's a that's a pretty interesting innovation that I think is is important for those who want to understand sort of what's happening in these information spaces because it's changing so fast. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, a really fascinating development to be seeing those uh, collaborations. Um, and that's a pet interest of mine, but I'll try and stay on topic. Um, I just, I'd love to know a little bit more about when you say you're sucking up data, um, where are you getting that from? What does that look like? And, and when you're starting to think about the questions that you want to ask of that data, what, how do you go about that process? Yeah, so right now, we, uh, well, we're focused mostly on data that's public. And we, st we often start out with data sets on Twitter, which um, we understand to be limited in all sorts of ways. And we try to, to make sure we take those limitations into account. But um, we also use that data as a starting point to map out what websites are, are participating and what kinds of articles are spreading. And then kind of look at other domains that are popular. Oh, look, there's a bunch of Medium posts about this. Let's go see what those Medium posts are, are talking about. So we actually kind of start with Twitter seed data and then spin out. Right now, we have about 100 million tweets related to COVID-19 um, that we started collecting uh, middle of January. Uh, it's, it's a lot. So clearly, we're not reading all of those. So we've got to use a lot of different kinds of analyses. We're also um, working with other partners and other kinds of platforms, including the Facebook Crowdtangle 
platform and thinking about how we might be able to blend insights from that into this kind of research. And also we think about how to, you know, what other platforms, Wikipedia, YouTube, um, I mentioned Medium, some of these other ones, what kind of platforms have um, public data that we can combine to look at these things. And we try to do this as much as, as much as we can as researchers in a way that like, we're not focused on outing individuals or making, you know, or, or looking at people. We're really interested in like large scale information sharing practices. Um, but we have to constantly kind of think about how do we protect privacy and especially of people who don't understand that their their participation is being used for research. How, how do we make sure that their privacy is protected? Yeah, I mean, these are hard. We're constantly dealing with a lot of sort of hard questions about this balancing of like wanting a lot of data to really understand these problems and, and be able to talk about them and maybe um, contribute to human flourishing by by having um, these platforms work differently, possibly, or policies be put in place or whatever it is, and balancing that out with kind of a, a real commitment to the privacy of individuals who who um, should expect some privacy in these in these um, information spaces. So digging in on what you were saying regarding platforms, it seems like platforms have been taking a a really interventionist approach to information around COVID-19 than to other types of dis and misinformation, and perhaps than they have done in the past. They've been pretty aggressive in trying to shut things down. Is that what you're seeing as well? And if that is what you're seeing, why do you think that is? The thing I would say is that when you think about a very polarized, a politically polarized society, there's a lot of topics that if a platform takes an action on them, they'll be accused of political bias. For something like a, a crisis like COVID-19, we can all agree that the spread of misinformation is damaging to a critical societal response to this virus or this crisis. And so I can see the platforms in this case may have more leeway to take to take action because they're they don't have to fear the same kind of accusations of political bias and even if they did they kind of have this but we're actually trying to you know save lives uh and this isn't just about votes this is about lives and and so it may be that it's just um the conditions of this crisis allow them to take a different kind of set of actions than with misinformation and disinformation around uh, election type things. So I don't know that that's true, but um, that would be one of my, you know, guesses about about why they've been able to take just just more significant action and more quickly. Can I ask, you were talking before about the increasing trend of collaboration between platforms and journalists and researchers. And I was wondering how important you think that is, what the real um, value add of that kind of collaboration is, and you know whether that's something that is, is going on right now around this crisis as well? Yeah. To answer the question about whether it's going on, I don't have examples, but I assume <laughs> because of the trends and other things that I've seen, I, I'm pretty certain that uh, there are collaborations going on right now between journalists and researchers around COVID-19 and the spread of mis- and disinformation. How formal those are, I, I, I'm not quite sure, but there are some really interesting sort of, uh, there's a, some interesting experimentation happening in that space, and I think it's really important. I think we have a, a situation where technology is changing quickly, human behavior is changing quickly, we've got this sort of critical problem at this intersection of information sharing and, and technology, 
and academics, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for us. We do great things, but we can't work at the speed that society needs uh, for some of the reporting. And, and journalists have have historically kind of filled this need of real-time reporting and then sort of more medium-term investigative reporting. And I think it's really important that we support them with the tools and techniques that we've learned in academia for and other kinds of research and how to do this and the analysis of this data. But how do you know? How can we take those methods and and then assist journalists in using them to do these analyses and to get to get insight at a at a quicker pace? I think it's I think it's really important, and I um I'm I'm supportive of it, and it's something that we're actually studying here at the University of Washington as well. So how do you think we we should expect the online information environment to evolve over the next few weeks? Do you think that it will remain kind of what it is right now, which is just this like fire hose of information and panic? Will things evolve and adjust? Or is this pretty much just what it's going to be like until however uh, COVID-19 is put under control, sort of whenever things return to quote unquote normal? Yeah, so I have some interesting expectations. Well, I don't think they'd be interesting to other crisis informatics researchers. I think we have some expectations of what um, will probably happen in the next few weeks and months. One of the things that I expect to see is organization around localized information online. So people trying to organize locally. We're already seeing that from a group I, I've seen working before called the Watershed Post. They responded to Hurricane Irene in 2011. And, and they put together sort of a, a, a community response in the Catskill Mountains around Hurricane Irene. They're doing the same thing for COVID. And I imagine we're going to see lots of these sort of localized information sharing and, and curation happening. And then sort of a beginning of people sharing needs and offers of help. I'm imagining we're going to see some people trying to organize assistance, whether it's, you know, delivering groceries and medicine to someone's home or you know, asking for donations to hire someone from TaskRabbit to do the same or whatever it is, right? So I think we're going to see some really interesting kind of localized information sharing. It doesn't mean that there won't be misinformation and exploitation of those. I think we're going to see that as well. But I'm really interested in that sort of localized response. At the higher level of of response or sort of like a, a more sort of global conversations and political information flows, I think we're going to see more of the same, more sort of accusations and blame and some sort of leveraging information in ways that have political impacts because, you know, it's an election year. It's always an election year here in the U.S. From a more international perspective, I think we're going to see these kinds of misinformation, disinformation around this virus use in ways to support more sort of nationalistic, nationalist uh, ideologies and rhetoric and and I, and I worry about that. And, and I just think it's going to be part of, of those conversations as well. So much that's going to happen that, that I couldn't, I have no idea. I, I'll leave that up to, to massive behavior and randomness to decide. Yeah, I can't believe that you're not prepared to completely 100% predict the future at this moment. Um, shocking to me. Um, that leads into something that we sort of touched on a little bit. Um, you talked about like positive things that the internet uh, might facilitate, but also maybe some more harmful things. And we, we sort of were pulling out before some of the distinctive uh, aspects of the 
internet and online information environment. And there's kind of this mini debate raging at the moment, it seems, about whether the internet facilitates the faster and further spread of bad and harmful information in moments like this, or whether it sort of just makes it more visible, but also facilitates people getting good information uh, and that can help them get a sense of connection to other people. Do you want to weigh in on that? Is the internet good or bad, I guess, is kind of the question I'm getting at. But, you know, do you have a sense of, like, how the internet is is, is really um, transforming these moments? Yeah. That's an interesting question. Uh, there's, t- there's two different questions there, I guess. But, the you know, in the disaster context, we've always known that when when something happens, that's, you know, when a crisis or disaster hits, people come together and they help each other in ways that we don't always expect and in ways that kind of violate our assumptions and can cross sort of class borders and geographical borders and all these other kinds of things. And so um, there's a great book called Paradise Built in Hell by Rebecca Saltman, and um, which kind of summarizes some of the research that, that, that disaster sociologists have known about that context. And so and I started studying disasters and on, online, uh, the on, you know, online activity after disasters in um, 2009, 2010, with with great collaborators at the University of Colorado, that was what that's what we were focusing on. We focused on like the best of human behavior in the worst of times, and we could see how the internet was enabling you know people to come up together from all over the world to help each other and help others and help you know people they'd never met before and people that didn't even speak their language, and they would come together and help and help each other during crisis events. And so um, I went from that you know circa 2000. 10, 2011, to studying like the worst of human behavior in the worst of times, which was sort of disinformation and the spread of disinformation after crisis events. So the answer to your question is yes, <laughs> uh, it supports both. Like the internet, you know, can facilitate all sorts of behaviors and, you know, different affordances of the internet, you know, and our technological platforms, our social media platforms, they're designed in certain ways to enable certain things, but they can also be appropriated in ways that the designers didn't intend human nature has many sides. And so those many sides do manifest online. I do think that there are changes that we could make to to platforms, to our own behaviors, to the governance of platforms and and things to kind of diminish some of the the worst aspects of of online behavior. Um, But at the same time, if we take too drastic action, we can also drown out some of the best aspects of online behavior. And so this is one of the things I think the platforms face every day of trying its attention of like, how do we support this, you know, some of these amazing um, aspects of human behavior that are facilitated in online spaces, and then also deal with some of the more toxic issues. So how then, if, if you're open to talking more about this, how do you think we should change our behaviors to sort of move in a more positive direction? Like what, and what should platforms and other organizations be doing? Gosh, that's a, it's a huge question. And I think it, if I, you had asked me three weeks ago or two months ago, I might've come up with a different answer than I'll have in a month or two after seeing how, how some of this plays out. Cause we're going to see, I may, may have different perspectives, um, as, as we try to deal with this particular crisis event and we're all turning online because we need these tools to even um, have the, the community that, that humans need when we're not allowed out of our house. So, so what I, I guess what I'm going to say here is, is that my recommendations, you know, are always kind of changing and my perspective is always kind of changing on, on what platforms can do. I think they've taken some good actions. I think there are some simple things that they've done and that they're still doing to really kind of 
identify and eliminate some of the worst actors from the online spaces, um, whether that is by, you know, not recommending or promoting or even allowing the sharing of, of content from, from websites that we know are exploitative. We know that that's what those websites do to kind of identifying harassing behavior, all those kinds of things. So I think there's some, some simple actions, but I try to kind of more focus on what we can do as participants in these spaces. And I do think that we are seeing a change in how people understand online spaces, the risk of misinformation and the role that we play as individual participants in the spread of that misinformation. And, and I hope that with continued sort of reflection and understanding, we can actually see an evolution of our own behaviors that, that help address this at sort of the collective level. And some of the rec- recommendations we have there are, you know, just sort of slowing down, be aware of how um, your anxiety makes you vulnerable to mis- and disinformation in this context, and to, to maybe learn some, some techniques for vetting information and to share techniques for vetting information with others and really kind of take responsibility as individual participants because it's a collective problem that's not it doesn't have easy answers and i think you know part of the solution is is a collective solution of us sort of becoming wiser participants all right well on that note kate thank you so much for joining us you've been listening to arbiters of truth the lawfare podcast's mini series on disinformation you can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. We came out with this episode a bit early, but we'll be back next week with a new episode at our usual time on Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Thanks this week to Kate Starbird. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer this week was Jacob Schultz. And our producer is Jen Patya Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on the podcasting app of your choice. Thanks for listening, stay safe, and wash your hands.